everyone, this is your host, Gons, and welcome to the first episode of Startup Conversations, View from the CTO, a collaboration between Table and CircleCI, where we sit down with some of the greatest CTOs in Europe to deconstruct how to build and operate high-performing technology teams. My guest today is Johan Romford. Johan is an investor, consultant, and former CTO who specializes in technical due diligence and corporate innovation. Before becoming a consultant, Johan worked as the managing director at Techstars for the BSH Future Home Accelerator. And before that, he co-founded Seismic, a social media account management company where he acted as CTO, building a distributed team of over 30 engineers. Seismic was acquired by Hootsuite in August 2012. So it's no surprise that Johan is a goldmine of information and advice for any and all CTOs. And in this conversation, we cover it all. The frustrations that come with transitioning from IC to CTO, why CTOs should try to become coaches to their employees to exponentially increase your productivity, why tapping into your current network is the best way to recruit global remote talent, what leading a distributed technical team of over 30 engineers looks like, the importance of educating your entire team, the CEO included, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Johan, welcome to the Circle CI and Seed Table podcast. Thank you, Gils. So let's start with a question. Um, what's a two-minute version of Johan? Give us an intro for the audience. Okay, uh, it's all in two minutes, but uh, <laughs> background, my background is in software engineering, worked in, in different industry, gaming, copyright, uh, then created a company uh, in, in 2007 with another French co-founder that we, and we moved to San Francisco to do that company called Seismic, a very unusual trajectory because we raised six millions in the first week we started and, uh, you know, and, and subsequently like another 10 million. Uh, got acquired in 2012 by Hootsuite, then took some time off, uh, started to help other entrepreneurs, uh, moved to Munich about seven years ago, started to work as a tech evangelist, so like very different worlds than what I used to do, which was like CTO, much more like outward facing role. Organized more than 200 meetups uh, and, and, and community events, three conferences, in the span of those three years and joined uh, Techstars as a managing director. So yet another kind of different role uh, that I did for almost two years and uh, where I run basically like the, the BSH uh, Future Home Accelerator, focusing on the future of home living. And, uh, and, and then it's been about a year that I'm doing mostly uh, tech due diligence for private equity and, and VCs and also training CTOs on what it takes to actually succeed on a technical due diligence. So still a huge part in, of the Techstars ecosystem as well. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also running like a CTO Slack. Uh, yeah, super involved in, in the scene, basically. So as a former CTO, mentor, advisor, former MD at Techstars, current sort of community builder or no to a big network of CTOs, you have a very wide view as to sort of what being a CTO is. So what do you think is the role of a CTO and how does this, does this evolve as a company grows? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it, it, it evolved quite a lot, right, throughout the, the, the life of a company. And, you know, when, when I first, first started as a CTO, like, I, I didn't really know what to expect. It was my first time, and it was, it was pretty brutal, I have to say, right? Like, especially because we raised, like, a lot of money early on. So, like, it was not, like, you know, like, nice and gentle. It was really, like, a, a pretty steep learning curve for me. So I would say, you know, like... Uh, if I look at my my own experience and and the one of like quite a few CTOs, like you're, you're the first engineer, right? So you like super hands on, like building the first MVP, getting out of the door, and uh, and and then starting to to, to build a team uh, behind that. And uh, and the more you build this team, the more you figure out that oh damn, like I don't really have time to code anymore, right? So that's the first frustration I would say, and and this one is. It's a huge one. Like I see it with a lot of CTOs that I'm, I'm, I'm coaching. It's really hard to let go of the code and because it's your baby as well, right? Like, uh, and, and, and just give it to the team and, you know, hope that everything will, will be fine essentially. But, you know, I, I think you need to do it at some point and, and kind of become a coach for your team. So that's how I, I, I saw myself. You know, I, I had this realization at some point. I was like, what is, uh, you know, what is the best thing I can do for the company, right? Instead of like, what is it that I really love to do, which was coding, obviously. But And then you realize that, you know, uh, the most exponential thing you can do is just helping your team members and your employees to uh, to do their best. So that's what I, I, I focused on. And um, and I think this, this transition, like, you know, it was a bit hectic, but, but eventually, like, uh, led me to a very different sort of role. And, and additionally to that, I would say that, you know, because our company was so in, it was always in the news, like one of our investors was, you know, uh, Michael Harrington from uh, from TechCrunch back then. Uh, so like every two weeks we were on the news, like we got a lot of attention, which for a CTO was just like not good, right? Like it's, it's just way too much. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, I had to transition from being like this, you know, this introvert, which many CTOs are, by the way, right? Like uh, very, like much more introverted than, than counterpart CEOs uh, to, to become more, you know, like, uh, I would not say extroverted because I, I, I'm still introverted, to be honest, but more social, I guess, right? And and more able to to speak in public. So uh, so I started to do that as well. I started to, because I got invited to conferences and, you know, giving interviews. And I realized that, you know, there might be an angle there also to uh, to find talents for my uh, for my team. Uh, so uh, so that's something that I, you know, I, I continue to, to do later on when I was a tech evangelist as well. That That is actually a perfect segue to, to my next question about sort of uh, being public and, and recruiting uh, talent. So I'm not going to state the obvious, but the world changed with COVID. What was once a local hiring market, you competed, let's say if you were in Munich, like you're right now, you usually competed with companies in Munich uh, for talent, of course. Uh, but now it's global, uh, sort of the global hiring market. And you got to compete with companies in London, in San Francisco, in Singapore, in India, and, and so on. So what does it take to recruit and retain talent in a world where COVID made talent markets global? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, like the art part is really like finding the people, right? Like, um, you know, if I look back at 
you know, my role as a CTO, like doing that, we, uh, we were, I think, pretty early in building like a remote culture, uh, engineering culture. Only our engineers actually were, were remote. Uh, but I, I built a pretty large office in uh, Bucharest, Romania, another one in Singapore, and I had also like a bunch of other developers uh, kind of spread all over the world. And I would say that, you know, one of like the most effective way for us to recruit was always through our own network, right? So uh, we, we we would tap into our, our, our employee network to, to find other people. And that way we actually grew like very organically. Uh, and a really little churn because you know, those guys, they, they love to work each other. They were like friends and like it, it was kind of a, of a family. And, and funny enough, like this company actually still exists after the acquisition. They're still working together. They were not part of the acquisition uh, and it's been 10 years, right? But, but they stay together and are taking projects because, you know, they, and that's something I, you know, I, I, I have quite a, a pride about that because, like, I, I build out this team, and uh, also later found out that they work with another idea Techstars uh, with uh, his company. Uh, I would say that finding those people, uh, you know, like first you have your employee network. Second, like being more public, right? Like, if nobody knows that you exist, it's pretty hard to to, to find talents, and you need to, you know, I think city like uh, um, engineers in general. You know, like they're not looking at job offers pretty much, right? Like it's always going through the network. So, uh, so you really need to 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 use that and to uh, to build a lot of awareness around what you're doing. So, you know, have an engineering blog, speak at conferences, organize meetups, be part of the community. Really, I think can can help because it, it, it has this inspiring you know element to to it. Where if other engineers are aware of the problems that you're solving and kind of get in touch also with like maybe some of your engineers and, and like have a, 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 you know an idea of your engineering culture that all those things are, are you know really good uh, elements to uh, to find new new talents now when it comes to keeping people uh, that's also an art in itself right because you're competing with a lot of other companies which can really offer, you know, like better salaries, better perks. Like it's a, it's a huge war. I have, a, you know, a very simple approach to that, to be honest, uh, which is take care of your people, right? Like you, you see, uh, you see sometimes, you know, like companies spending a lot of money hiring talents and then sort of just like letting them be. Uh, without really taking care of their well-being inside the company. And I think that's a mistake, right? Like, uh, uh, to me, being a leader in my company means that I do care about my employees. Like, I care not only about, you know, the work they produce, obviously, but who they are as human beings. E- even though I had my team in, in Bucharest, like, I... You know, I was flying there like every two months, literally, and spending like two weeks with those guys. And we would be drinking together and having dinner together. And, you know, and that's how you build the trust, right? And the trust is really like the fundamental element in keeping people, right? So you need the trust. You need to, uh, you know, I'm French. So like, you know, when it comes to conflict management, like I, I'm pretty direct. But, but again, I'm very caring, right? Like I would not say something just like throw something at, at someone, without saying, hey, like, uh, I can help you, you know, like, uh, in, in, in solving that. So I, I think 
this communication aspect is very important when it comes to, to keeping people and sometimes the simple things are you know the best yeah absolutely simplicity is usually the best be yours can't hurt uh, so yes. <laughs> absolutely absolutely um other than technical skills what are some of the core personality traits you look for in new hires to join the team and i'm asking because what you built which is a high performing team that sticks together after a decade is, is quite impressive i think gut feeling is quite important in there uh, and, and that's also something I, i learned at techstars right like because we're interviewing a lot of companies and like we're putting money in them so we, we need to, to get good at, at selecting good people and, and somehow the criteria between selecting founders and you know, employees for, for, for my, my company before are like roughly the same. So you're looking for people who are, you know, likable first, like that, well, and that's kind of like the gut feeling aspect, right? Like uh, if I'm sitting in front of someone and I'm like, I, I don't really want to get a beer with this person, like, you know, in a, in a bar tonight, then probably it's not going to be a good fit, right? And, and that's very intangible, but that, that's just the way it is. So likability, co coachability, right? Like, is this someone that you can you can coach and, and help to get better at what they're doing? Some people are just like, you know, they, they have quite a fixed mindset and it's really hard to make them move away from that, right? And, and you know, in, in a high-performance team where things are changing really fast and, you know, um, You need to, to cater to new constraints all the time. Like you need people who are like coachable, flexible, uh, and, and will, will, you know, like follow the, the motions basically. So there's that, uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, like, like ability, coachability, uh, being a good team player, right? Some people just work for themselves. Like, let's be, let's be honest, you know, uh, and, and sometimes I, I would say that it's, it might be one thing that is the most difficult maybe to, to find out in an interview, like kind of what their mindset is when it comes to, uh, to working with others. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, I, I generally like to work with people with a high degree of empathy because I think it makes the team much better. And, uh, I, you know, I, I would say that I, I, I really, develop my empathy along the, the, the years. And, and I think it's really essential to create a good work environment when there's no, you know, like no blaming, no gossiping and no things like that, right? Like, uh, again, it's all about being like pretty direct, uh, but at the same time, you know, like uh, being in touch with your emotions, right? Which, you know, so, sometimes sounds some scaldy, I guess, but uh, I, I think it's very important. Absolutely, absolutely. And one thing you, you said really caught my attention, which is some people work for themselves. And as I've been scaling my own team, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Um, one of the realizations that I came to is that you often want to hire people who think uh, of their careers as a multiplayer game versus a single player game, which is what most people think or, or the And what I mean is they usually need to have like a, this positive sum mindset, right? Collaboration, um, being able to give away your Legos with sort of the, the focus of, of moving the team forward, right? It's not about politics. It's not about sort of territory. Um, so if you think about your career in a sort of a multiplayer, like a multiplayer game, 
uh, I find that that's one of those sort of the core traits that I, like, I look for. So any any practices or fun rituals or cultural principles uh, that you've used in your organizations or with the CTOs that you coach uh, that help create a high-performing environment? Mm, I, I look at different things, uh, I would say, like, uh, first, I think it, it's important to make sure that the CTO is you know, is well in his head, right? Like, uh, and, and when I say that, it's, you know, my experience as as being a CTO, uh, I, I say it was brutal. I didn't sleep enough, for example, right? Like, so I, I was sleeping like four hours per night. Like my, my CEO even sort of like branded me the CTO never sleeps, which sounds really bad actually now that I look at it. It was fun back then, but uh, but so I would say, you know, Start with yourself uh, and, and, and make sure that yourself you have the good habits because your team will copy those habits, right? Like they, 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 you are their leader and like they, they use you as a sort of role model. And, uh, and, and so if you are the, the last thing in the office, they will also stay longer in the office, right? Uh, so they will emulate all your behaviors pretty much. So make sure that you have like good, Routines such as you know like yeah, sleeping you know enough or getting enough sleep uh, enough rest sorry um, <clears throat> taking breaks from from time to time I think it's also super important like I didn't really take any vacation in four years when I was doing startup and it's a it's a huge mistake right like because I you know I I was really obsessed by 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 time by you know. Uh, I was always like stressed that you know something would go down if I go on vacation, like like a lot of irrational fear to be honest. Uh, the reality is like I could have done it. I, I just didn't do it. And and the reason it's important is that you know your brain needs a break, otherwise it's burning out at some point. And and if I look at myself during this this period, right, like you know, maybe the first year I was okay because I was like so excited and and, and, and so on, but like as the year passed, uh, my my productivity level also decreased because I was too tired. I, I also, you know, like made some wrong decisions, to be honest, right? Because I was too exhausted to make the right ones. So, uh, you know, I think that that's a good first one. Like, you know, make sure that you, you get a bit of exercise. Like I'm, I'm not huge on exercising, but like at least get out, you know, of the office and like work a little bit. Make time to to uh, you know like for friends and family, which I also totally forgot. And and a lot of CTOs they forget about that, right? Like uh, you, you do have like a support network, like your friends and family, like they, they are supporting you in your endeavors. Uh, you need to be like somehow grateful for that, and you know like so spend some time with them. Like it, it also regenerate a bit of your you know like uh, um, brain power. Totally. Uh, thanks. Thanks for that. And. Yeah. You said something or something that I found is that the counterintuitive thing about sleep is the more you sleep, the more productive you are and the better decisions you make, not the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, in my, uh, when I arrived in San Francisco, I, uh, I was looking for an apartment and um, I found this, uh, this super nice uh, loft and met the, uh, met the landlord. And she was this, uh, we started to talk about technology like right away. We didn't talk about the apartment or whatever. She happened to be like the, uh, the former um, worldwide marketing director at uh, Intel. Uh, and, and so she, she, she coached me a little bit back then. And, 
you know, I, I mostly brushed it off because I, I, I was arrogant and, you know, like, uh, but one thing that, that stuck with me that I revisited like years afterwards in, in one of my notebooks, she wrote something like, manage your energy, not your time, right? And, and I wish I would have followed this advice because it's so true, right? Like you can, you, you can find a lot of time in a, in a day, right? You can, you can work for 16 hours a day. But like, do you work with a high level of energy? You know, probably not. So it's much better, in my opinion, to work like less time, but with a much higher energy uh, than, than the opposite. One of the sort of key things of productivity or high performance performance teams is is tooling. So do you, sort of this might be a bit sort of tactical, but do you let developers pick their own tools or do you aim to standardize tooling as much as possible? Uh, I, I, I think it depends on, you know, kind of where this tooling sits, right? Obviously you have some tooling that, you know, we, we, we sit kind of in, uh, in the middle of the chain, like, you know, your CI CD, for example, right? Uh, so when it comes to CI CD uh, pipeline, Obviously, like you, you need to make a choice and just like you know, sort of impose it on everyone, right? Uh, but other than that, you know, I've always been like super open uh, about my developers, like you know, either using like Mac, uh, Windows, uh, you know, VS Code, uh, IntelliJ, like whatever kind of IDs they feel productive in, because. A lot of them have been working for, for quite a long time in those uh, environments and, you know, like they are productive in those environments. So it doesn't make sense to standardize that at all. And sometimes that's even true with the languages, right? Like particularly if you are in kind of like a microservices uh, architecture, like why, you know, imposing like one single language? Uh, I mean, obviously, like you don't want like tens of them, right? Like, but... You, you can have a bit of flexibility as well, which generally is, is fairly appreciated. So I would say, yeah, like, you know, if if it's not too core uh, to, uh, to to the company, like having this flexibility of choosing your tooling uh, it is quite important. How would you quantify the impact of software engineering teams on company level metrics? As a CTO, of course, like how, how would you bridge that gap between this is what my team is doing, and these are, I don't know, revenue, growth rates, ROIs, uh, market share. Um, is that something that you sort of usually think about? Yeah, it, it's it's just difficult to to really, you know, sort of identify like what leads the other, right? Uh, obviously, if you produce, you know like bad quality code, like that will have an impact for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, like if I, if I again look at my own experience uh, when I was doing Sysmic, uh, we were kind of the king of partnerships. So we would have partnership with like, you know, all the big ones like Twitter, Facebook, Salesforce, Microsoft, and so on. Way too many partnerships. And, and that what that created was that, you know, First, a lot of distraction, a lot of pressure to deliver on the really tight deadlines, and, and essentially that creates technical debt, right? Like because you need to go fast and and so on. And this debt you need to repay at some point. 
And, and if you don't repay it, that has an impact on the business as well, right? Uh, very clearly. And, and, and so that's something I, you know, when I talk to CTOs and also to CEOs, I'm trying to, to make them aware of like, you know, uh, all those things that are not, not features, right? Like the features of the product, like everyone understands that, right? Like, but, uh, like really few CEOs actually understand like what it takes to build good software. And it's not just about features. It's not about, hey, can you add this, this new, uh, new thing on, on, on the front end? It's about, you know, uh, repaying your tech debt. It's about uh, having a great infrastructure. Uh, it's about taking care of the scaling and, and, you know, like kind of grooming the architecture. All those things, right? Like the security, the monitoring, like all those things that you don't really see. And if you don't have them at some point, it will just break or, or like put you in, in a pretty bad situation. And that will have a real impact on the business, right? Yeah, and, and this is a great sort of follow-up to, to my next question, which is, like, how do you actually balance the sort of short-term requests, revenue, growth rate, team stuff, against, like, long-term technology development, having a great infrastructure, all the things that are behind the scenes and that people who are maybe not technical don't, don't understand that need to happen and that might, might X months to the roadmap? One of my mistakes back then when I was CTO was to to not properly educate my CEO, right? About about like again, what is it that you know? What, what else am, am I doing besides just building the product? Um, so I think that you need to have a like a realistic development roadmap that take into account those things. When I when I talk to CTOs, like one of the first questions I will ask is, you know, how do you manage your tech debt? Because that has a tendency to kill companies, really, right? Or, you know, make company miss investments, or make company miss acquisitions because too much tech debt, which means that you know, the money that you're supposed to inject for growth actually is going somewhere else, right? And 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 so. Uh, that's a tricky part. So it, it, it has to, you know, it, it's like with, with everything, right? Like you, there's like short, uh, you know, short terms, sort of like wins that you can do sometimes, but you, you still need to keep in mind, like, you know, the longer term and, and make sure that you're taking care of that as well. And, and again, like, you know, edu- educating, I think, the, the, the whole company about like, what it takes to build great software is important. And not only the CEO, right? Because, you know, I had, for example, like director of, of partnership, like really early on, like we had too much money, right? Like, so we prematurely scaled like everything we could. And uh, and the director of partnership, what does he do? Well, he's trying to find new partnerships, right? And then he's like pissed about the tech team who's not executing fast enough. So, Again, a lot of educations to uh, and, and transparency to, uh, to to be made there. Absolutely. And and speaking of the long term, like how frequently do you discuss innovation, uh, new technologies with your own teams, or is that usually a top down thing? How do you go about that? Uh, and how do you see the, the the CTOs that you coach go about that? I mean, it, it varies. I would say, uh, you know, but. I generally think that, you know, the, the CTO will be the one at some point sort of like taking care of the 
technical vision, right, and, and of the R&D topic. So uh, one topic that I, you know, took care of uh, at some point was exactly that, like just building like prototypes. And honestly, like I'm much better at, build, at building prototypes than production code, right? So building prototypes and uh, to, to, to see like, you know, try to showcase an idea that I have, uh, something that could have an impact on the business and, and see if you could, could fly or not. And then, you know, discussing that with the, with the entire team and see if there's a potential for it. And then sort of like uh, ending that over to the engineers who are like, oh my God, what is this code? Uh, okay, let's build that properly now, <laughs> right? Um, but another thing that I, I, I did with my team uh, as well is like sort of like, you know, mini hackathons, right? Like, and, uh, and, and that has this tendency also to uh, you know, bring a bit more like motivation in the team when everyone know that they can actually contribute to, to the innovation. Speaking of which, you know, I, I, I think one mistake that is being done in many companies is like siloing the different like departments. And, and, and so like I see many, many startups who have this tendency to, to see the engineering team as almost like pod monkeys, right? Like, uh, yeah, like let's give them the, you know, like build, build it, right? Instead of, you know, like taking advantage of the fact that, you know, people are pretty smart as well. Like they can have really smart comment about product. Uh, so I'm a big proponent of taking your engineers and like, you know, embedding them into like product uh, teams as well, like making them participate in these discussions, having your engineers doing customer support as well. Right, because then they're gonna feel the pain of the customer, and like maybe they will fix those bugs faster than you know, like they uh, they used to. Same thing maybe with the marketing, right? Like th- there is a technical aspect to marketing, and, uh, and and sometimes you see the marketing team like struggling with a few things that the tech team actually could solve pretty easily, right? So I think like the more connections you create like that, you know, inside the company, the the more open-minded your, your engineering team will be and also the more innovation will come out of that because they will, you know, be in touch with, uh, with ideas and, and they will bring their own as well. Yeah, a, a lot of, of food for, for, for thought, particularly the, the sort of the piece about embedding the tech team within other functions, marketing, product, even support. <laughs> How do, do you, A, convince engineers to support and be convinced product and marketing or whatever that might be to let sort of intruders get into their day to day? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I think you need to sort of like bring the, the, the positive, right? Like uh, first and, and, and foremost, uh, and, and, and kind of, you know, try to convince them that it's, it's important to, yeah, I guess, you know, in the case of the customer support, which, you know, might be the one thing that sort of like, eh, I don't really know if I want to do that. I, yeah, you, <laughs> I mean, I did a lot of customer support myself, and I think you got to show the example, actually, as a CTO, right? So if, if you're not talking to product, if you're not talking to marketing, right, you're doing it wrong. Right, and if you're not doing support, you're also doing it wrong. So, when you again, you know, when your engineers like see you doing that, 
like it's hard for them to say like no i don't want to do it right uh and i, I might have had like a, f- a few of them like you know being uh, on that side but but i think for the most part is again they will just emulate your behaviors and if you know it, it's just going to be a problem if you say like do something when yourself you're not doing it lead by example absolutely um, i think that's a way to wrap it up yeah What do you think is keeping most CTOs up at night over the next sort of 12 months? I ask because, as I mentioned in the beginning, I think you have a pretty wide sort of view into what many CTOs are thinking right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess it depends on, on the stage, right? Like uh, <laughs> that, that, that will be different problems. I would say that early on, you know, what kept me awake at night was just, Having something that is stable enough that it just doesn't like go, go down too often. Uh, so just taking care of like everything, right? Like that was what was keeping me up at night. Uh, and, and then it shifted more like, you know, towards like maybe like team issues and, 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 and things like that. I, I think generally speaking, the real struggle is time management. And, and you see that more and more like increasingly happening, particularly like, you know, in, in, in terms of pandemic, because there are a need for more meetings uh, and, you know, engineers have a real need to do deep work, right? Deep work is you need to put your head into it and like go for like a few hours without interruption. On, on one end, being at home, like can help, depending on, you know, like uh, your home, I would say. Uh, if you have kids or all, like, it might be also, like, much more difficult. Uh, but, but you might be able to find, you know, like, uh, better cams than if you are, like, in an open office uh, sort of uh, context. But really making sure that you, you group meetings, right? Like, that you, you are a bit, like, roughly about uh, uh, time management. So like grouping meetings, avoiding going to meetings where like you don't need to be. And, and there are plenty of them probably. Um, making sure that you, you, you get like this long stretch of time either to, to think or to, to, to uh, you know, to build something. And, and, and then, you know, if you go through like a round of funding, obviously like, you know, that's going to be consideration about like, okay, how am I doing with like the tech DB stuff, right? Like that also can keep you up at night. It did for me, for sure, uh, because I didn't know what to expect. So, um, yeah, I would say, you know, good time management uh, and, uh, and and that's already like, yeah, yeah it's something to, uh, to improve quite a lot your, your condition as a CTO. Let's switch lanes for a bit. Um, what writer or book has got the greatest influence on your professional career and why? Uh, I, I would say that it's, uh, it's a book called, <clears throat> book called um, Mirror World from David Jelopner. Uh, so it's, the full name is uh, Mirror World or the Day Software Put the Universe in a Shoebox, something like that. It, it, it's a... Uh, It's a very interesting book because it's from a computer scientist uh, from from Yale, and who, who invented uh, worked a lot on distributed systems, 
uh, back then created uh, a language called Linda, which is extremely aesthetic, right? And that had a lot of influence on my way of thinking about software initially. Not only as a way to do things, but almost as uh, an art form, uh, one could say, right? Like taking into it. It's like, you know, when you look at, you know, uh, an object, right? Like there's a function, but there's also like the aesthetics that, that goes with it that might serve the function. And, and I think it's pretty much the same with, with software. And, and so this book had, had really like a huge impact on how I. I see architecture and how designing things with aesthetic in mind is actually quite important. I think that is a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Johan, for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Gans. Likewise. Thank you, Gans. Hey, this is Gans again. If you enjoyed this episode of Startup Conversations, please let us know by leaving an honest review. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this one or find out more about the collaboration between SeedTable and CircleCI, visit seedtable.com forward slash conversations. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.